Hello, welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Scott Mitchell about his recent book, Buddhism in America, Global Religion, Local Contexts, published by Bloomsbury in 2016. This work provides a much-needed, up-to-date overview of Buddhism in the United States. To tackle such a large topic, Mitchell draws on Thomas Tweed's work and approaches American Buddhism as comprising worldviews and sets of practices that are born of local circumstances, but which can be firmly located within global, global cultural networks that extend far beyond the local and beyond America. The book is usefully divided into three sections. In the first, Mitchell provides a short introduction to Buddhism and then discusses the history of Buddhism in the U.S. up to around the 1960s. Here he also touches on the 19th century European interest in Buddhism, on the ways in which U.S. immigration policy influenced Buddhist demographics, and on the Zen boom of the 1950s. The second section presents a rich overview of Buddhism in the U.S., organized according to a tripartite distinction between Theravada traditions, East Asian Mahayana traditions, and Vajrayana traditions, including Japanese esoteric Buddhism. For anyone who wants to know who established what temple or group and when, this is essential reading. A third section then addresses a handful of themes or developments through which to examine American Buddhism more broadly. Here Mitchell sheds fresh light on a number of issues that will be familiar to anyone involved with Buddhism in the U.S. For example, he examines commercial uses of Buddhist ideas and imagery, but goes beyond characterizing such uses as mere cultural appropriation for monetary ends by providing examples in which it is practicing Buddhists themselves who are behind the commercial use. Here he also looks at visual art and literature that straddles the border between Buddhist and non-Buddhist, thus bringing our attention to the gray area in which readers' notions of what is and is not Buddhism are challenged. Other topics addressed in this third section include issues around identity, pan-Buddhist and secular Buddhist movements, and various forms of socially engaged Buddhism. In the interview, we only touch on a few of these topics, and readers will have to pick up a copy for themselves to appreciate the full scope of the volume. The book is in part designed to be used in the classroom, and each chapter is accompanied by a useful chapter overview, discussion questions, and a list for further reading. That being said, the book offers a wealth of information, and is thus a must-read for any scholar wanting to know about the history and current state of American Buddhism. Furthermore, written in clear prose as it is, the book can also be enjoyed by those without a prior understanding of Buddhism, and it will provide anyone who is interested with the most up-to-date and comprehensive account of American Buddhism currently available. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Scott Mitchell, and we'll be talking about his recent book, Buddhism in America, Global Religion, Local Contexts, published by Bloomsbury in 2016. Scott Mitchell is the Reverend Yoshitaka Tamai Professor of Jodo Shinshu Buddhist Studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California, where he also serves as the Dean of Students and Faculty Affairs. His research focuses primarily on Buddhism in the United States, on the Jodo Shinshu, that being the Japanese True Pure Land School of Buddhism, and on portrayals of Buddhism in the media. Scott, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. I wanted to ask you to begin by telling us how you came to the study of Buddhism, and perhaps more specifically to the study of Buddhism as it is practiced in the United States. Sure. Um, uh, so my my interest in Buddhism began probably the same way a lot of folks um, in our field began at, at, in college. Um, my first year in college, I took a course on the history of the Vietnam War era um, conflict. And, you know, first week or so in the class, the professor gave a short overview of uh, pre-colonial Vietnamese history and culture, which included a, a short little riff on Buddhism. And um, I think at the time I was the kind of uh, kid who was 
always asking the big philosophical questions and something about um, the just that short overview of Buddhism really fascinated me. And so uh, over the course of my undergraduate career, I um, studied more and more about Buddhism and eventually changed my major to philosophy and religion. And, you know, um, I jokingly say that when you have a degree in philosophy, you pretty much have to go to grad school. So <laughs> um, I decided that what I really wanted to do was teach. Um, so I um, uh, went to grad school to um, get my doctorate. And um, that was when, um, in my first year in grad school, I took a course, um, I think it was called something like um, East Meets West, and it was about um, the encounter between Buddhism and Western culture. Um, and that class was fascinating to me for a lot of reasons, and, and one was just the realization that there is this very long, um, complicated cultural history uh, as Buddhism moves into Western cultural contexts, and um, that sparked my imagination. You know, I went into grad school sort of with this idea that I would be doing comparative religious studies and um, quickly realized that my real passion was just doing um, Buddhist studies work, so that's how I focused, ended up focusing my, my graduate work on um, Buddhism as practice in the United States. Great. So the book we're discussing today is an overview of Buddhism in the United States. And I want to ask how you see this book fitting into the broader study of American Buddhism. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the study of Buddhism in America, perhaps you could just say something briefly about um, the history of that particular area of research. Sure. So uh, my feeling is that the, the study of Buddhism in the West is um, it's, Buddhism in the West has been understudied um, and hasn't really uh, only really very recently has uh, the study of Buddhism in the West been taken seriously by Buddhist studies more generally. Buddhist studies as, a, as an academic field tends to focus on um, on Asia, on, on textual studies or, or history. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I think Buddhist studies has, has benefited recently with more um, anthropological approaches and that sort of thing. But um, that, that the focus on the United States in particular or the West in general has been um, somewhat uh, slow to develop, I think. Hmm. Um, and that's changed a lot in the last um, couple of decades. Um, and a lot, a lot of stuff has been published on this subject. So um, one of the, the challenges of this book was to get a handle on this um, this. Uh, constantly changing developing field as well as a pretty diverse subject um, interestingly I think one of the one of the trajectories that we see in the study of Buddhism in the West is to actually um, get away from a um, uh, regional or, or area studies model um, you know traditionally Buddhist studies scholars I think sort of specialize in a particular part of the world you know East Asia with a specialty in Japan kind of thing and um, mm -hmm. for those people who work on the West there's a similar corollary you know I study Buddhism in the West with a particular interest in the United States mm -hmm. uh, interestingly though it seems that the trajectory is sort of moving to more transnational models and sort of away from um, an area studies approach so one of the first uh, one of the first things that came to me when um, I started conceptualizing this book was how do I talk about a bounded category of Buddhism in the United States while paying attention to current trends in the field that are, are sort of rejecting um, that model? Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to be able to locate Buddhism within, uh, you know, the United, with, with U.S. Buddhism within a sort of global uh, modern discourse. Sure. Great. So the book's divided into three sections, and in the first you provide a historical overview of Buddhism in the U.S., here you address the early modern European interest in Buddhism and then discuss the 19th century introduction of Buddhism into the U.S. 
the effect of federal immigration policy on the Buddhist population or on U.S. uh, Buddhist demographics, and also the surge of interest in Japanese Zen that we see in the 1950s. The second part of the book is organized around three broad traditions, Theravada Buddhism, East Asian Mahayana Buddhism, and Tibetan Buddhism. And you actually include Japanese forms of esoteric Buddhism uh, within your discussion of Tibetan Buddhism. And finally, in the third section of the book, you have three chapters organized around a handful of themes or issues that all Buddhists and Buddhist groups in the U.S. have had to address. So I want to ask how you came to organize the book in this particular manner. And in your answer, I was wondering if you could also touch on your use of Thomas Tweed's translocal analysis. Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of the the organization of the book, I think, probably derived on some level from the way I actually teach the subject. I've been teaching a graduate seminar on Buddhism in the West for um, uh, seven or eight years now. And um, this is... This is one of the ways that I, I generally approach the subject is to start the semester off by talking about the history of the tradition and then sort of move into um, uh, topical issues or frames, like I say in the book, or, or um, theory and method kind of thing. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a believer in the idea that you sort of have to begin with um, begin with history to sort of understand where where the tradition came from, what sort of historical issues has um, <clears throat> has helped shape it. <clears throat> to sort of provide you with some uh, foundation as you move into um, larger, um, uh, more contemporary issues. I, I tend to find that most of my students are very concerned about contemporary issues, um, sort of current events, um, which is great, but it's also good to know that, that current events are the result of history, right? So <laughs> um, part of my approach was to, to sort of naturally say, well, I want to begin the book with a, a cursory overview of the history, not just of Buddhism in the West, but also uh, Buddhism's larger history, um, you know, uh, it, you know, Buddhism in the West has a very short history relative to the entire history of the traditions, right? So, to, again, to contextualize um, uh, more recent history with the, the large sweep of history going back to the historical Buddha. Uh, uh, the second section, I, you know, I know I needed to include um, a sort of survey of the landscape, so to speak, of, you know, what different kinds of Buddhist groups are here. And then the third section, as you said, is a sort of topical frames to, um, that, that Buddhist groups are, are wrestling with or or also methodological approaches that scholars have used to talk about the traditions. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think those are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, Tweed's work was very important to me in, in um, thinking through how I wanted to tell this story. Um, you know, as I, as I said before, there's this. I think the trajectory of, of the field has been uh, moving more toward uh, translocal studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Tweed's larger point. Um, you know, to his one of his phrases is that that scholars should follow the flows, right? And he's talking about the the sort of cultural flows that um, the tradition uh, flows along, <laughs> um, either uh, through uh, through choice uh, or through um, just by being pushed along by history or or immigration policies or whatnot. Um, and that's one way to sort of approach the subject and understand uh, how Buddhism is manifested in this country as a result of larger transnational forces. Um, and I also wanted to play with the idea of um, how, you know, in his larger sort of metaphor about this, um, Tweed talks a lot about rivers and, and, you know, coming together and flowing apart. And so um, I wanted to build on that by talking about convergence and divergence and the way that different cultural discourses and movements of persons came together in some literal ways 
to um, sometimes create new forms of Buddhism, but then also diverged um, and took separate different paths. Um, and this was, in some ways, um, in thinking through the way in which um, Buddhist history in the United States is often told on a very um, case-by-case basis. You know, people look at this particular tradition some kind of an isolation um, mm-hmm. and sort of create silos, right, um, of different traditions that seem to have nothing in, to do with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, when writing a book like this, that's a survey of, of everything, <laughs> um, an impossible death. Um, I wanted to demonstrate the, the, the points of contact and where different traditions have um, come together or influenced one another, you know, and, and, and honestly have sometimes um, broken off and, um, and, and created their own silos and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I wanted to do that on, on different la- layers within the book, both in terms of the history, but also in um, making connections in the, um, the methodological frames, chapters, or, you know, playing with the idea of bringing esoteric Japanese Buddhism into conversation with Tibetan esoteric Buddhism and yeah. see what that would look like. <clears throat> yeah, great. great. So, so in the beginning of the book, you address some of the ways of immigration that first brought Buddhism to the United States. And among these words was a movement of several thousand Chinese immigrants coming in the mid-9th century as part of the California Gold Rush. And then later, a stream of Japanese immigrants arriving in Hawaii and California beginning in the late 19th century. I wanted to first ask why it was that the Buddhism that these early Chinese immigrants brought did not last beyond the 19th century. And after that, I was, I I wanted you to address the dominant role that Japanese Buddhism played in introducing two Americans to Buddhism in the first half of the 20th century. Um, well, you know, I, I think uh, in terms of the, the early Chinese immigration, I think that there's there's a, there's a chance that some uh, early Chinese Buddhist or religious groups make it into the twenty into the twentieth century. Um, but the the thing to know is that the um, this early great uh, group of immigrants were primarily laborers um, who first you know tried to work on the gold mine fields and then were kicked off and then um, built the transcontinental railroad and then were um, sort of forced out of um, uh, the Midwest and the mountain states and back into, you know, usually Los Angeles or San Francisco. Um, and not a ton of work has been done on this particular period of, of history. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really good open question. To what extent did these communities um, uh, survive or thrive or, or, or establish themselves, if at all? Um, I know folks like Stuart Chandler have done some work on that. And, um, you know, as an aside, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was sort of point toward future research vistas and, and sort of challenge people to, to ask these questions and go out and do more research. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but but the, the big issue, of course, with early Chinese immigration is that um, anti-Chinese sentiment was so incredibly strong in this country in the um, late uh, 1800s that it was um, very difficult to um, establish uh, an immigrant community. Of course, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act that was passed that, that ended immigration from, from China. Um, Asian immigrants were subject to Jim Crow laws like other people of color, and so that disenfranchised them pretty strongly. And then there was the overt pressure from the dominant culture to um, blend in and um, convert basically to Christianity. And so I think that combination of factors made it extraordinarily difficult for these uh, this first wave of immigrants to 
um, to establish um, uh, a community and to, to really establish Buddhism. And, and I would also be curious to, um, to speak with scholars who are specialists in this particular um, era of um, Chinese Buddhism, because one of the, the differences here with the Japanese immigrants is that um, once the Japanese immigrants came to Hawaii and then the West Coast, um, they often petitioned um, organizations back into Japan to send priests to America to help establish new communities. Um, that says something about the relative stability and strength of Japanese Buddhism at the time, and it would be I would be curious to know what was going on on the ground in China in the mid 1800s that would have allowed for that kind of um, proselytization, if you will, yes, um, or missionizing um, in the way that we see from Japan, um, because you know by the time Japanese immigrants are coming to the United States, that's the the era of the Meiji Restoration in Japan, and Buddhism is going through this this period of rapid modernization. Um, and folks are um, are are missionizing, <laughs> yeah. trying very hard yeah. to um, to uh, promote Japanese Buddhism and to um, to make the case that Japanese Buddhism is a modern, rational religion that can compete, so to speak, on the global stage. And they're sending people overseas, both for immigrant communities, but also to things like the World Parliament of Religion, um, which uh, leads into the, that second part of your question, which is um, the the sort of the way in which I think most Americans probably understood Buddhism in the first part of the 20th century was was through uh, a Japanese lens. Um, both because on the ground, the only communities that had really been established by this point were Japanese communities. Um, and then intellectually, a lot of the, um, the work that's being done in English in the first part of the 20th century is um, uh, being done in conversation with Japanese Buddhist scholars uh, and scholarship. And so those those perspectives on Buddhism get foregrounded. Mm-hmm. For, um, for a pretty significant period of time until uh, after World War II, um, and you know, really even until the 1960s. Um, you know, going mm-hmm. back to the Beats, it's, it's interesting to me that you know Gary Snyder is um, this this college kid who wants to know more about Buddhism, and you know, he comes to, to Berkeley, and you know, he goes to a Jodo Shinshu temple because that's really like the only temple in town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, had there been Tibetans here at the time, or um, uh, Thai Buddhists or whatnot, you know, that might have been a different story. Um, so it, that that that's that's sort of where I'm where I'm uh, sort of sort of pointing out is this this the, the way things were very different uh, before World War II um, in Americans' understanding of uh, uh, Buddhism. Sure. So you know, basically, in 1950, if you wanted to look around for a Buddhist temple and America, the chances that it would be a Japanese Buddhist temple are very high. But yeah. <laughs> you note that this begins to change with the Cart Seller Act of 1965. What did that particular piece of legislation do to Buddhist demographics in the U.S.? Um, well, the the Heart Seller Act um, removed, you know, nearly uh, 50, 75 years of U.S. immigration policy that. Um, the banned immigration from most of Asia and put pretty strong quotas on uh, countries around the world. Basically, the quota system was the U.S. population had to have, you know, uh, you, had, you could only let in certain uh, numbers of people from countries around the world if they already had, you know, a population here in the U.S. So there was virtually no immigration from Asia for a very long period of time. And um, the Heart Seller Act was passed in 65, and you know, within uh, five, seven years of of that law being enacted, um, things in Southeast Asia go from bad to worse, and we see um, several different 
different interrelated crises um, as a result of the, the Vietnam uh, War, as well as um, the military coup in Burma, um, <clears throat> that created various refugee crises, and, and of course what's going on in mainland China with the Cultural Revolution. So there's um, there's a lot of things going on in Asia that compel people to to leave Asia and um, uh, make their way here to the United States. Um, so just on the ground, you see the beginnings by the early 1970s of um, the establishment of a wide diversity of Buddhist communities from um, virtually all parts of Buddhist Asia, um, which is a distinct difference from uh, pre-World War II, where, you know, like we said, it's, it's mostly just Japanese immigrants. Um, but I also think that the the other thing to remember about that p- particular period of, of U.S. cultural history is that there's uh, a new openness uh, going on in the United States where um, where where we're more interested in Asia, um, both um, you know politically or militarily because of what's going on in Vietnam and, and other parts of Southeast Asia, but also um, with new institutions like the Peace Corps being established and, and this um, uh, you know, and then of course the countercultural um, movement and whatnot, where there's this this interest on the part of many young Americans to learn more about um, Eastern religions that um, has the effect of both allowing people to travel to Asia and, and learn about Buddhism in its um, Asian contexts, but also to be open to um, um, immigrants and refugees and Buddhists coming into the country and coming into contact with them here. So there's, I note some, some parallels in the development of American Buddhist communities um, in the 1970s and 80s with um, that earlier generation of, um, of Japanese immigrants. Mm-hmm. But some distinct differences where the um, the anti you know the anti Japanese and anti Asian sentiment of early 20th century is not as as strong as mm-hmm. it is in the late 20th century, and so that I think allows for both the establishment of these communities, but also for their eventual um, uh, further growth and success in a way that you know doesn't seem to happen well happen, but you know in, in a different way from earlier immigration. Great. So near the end of the first section of your book, you introduce the eye of parallel congregations. What is this, and how is this an accurate description of Buddhism in the U.S. in the latter part of the 20th century? Um, well, the idea of parallel congregations is an idea that um, Paul David Numerick actually came up with in his um, ethnog- ethnographic study of uh, Sri Lankan and Thai Buddhism here in the U.S., uh, mostly Sri Lankan Buddhism, and what what he noted was that um, that there seemed to be within these communities um, parallel congregations. One being the um, the immigrants or um, native-born Sri Lankan Americans who were practicing Buddhism in one particular way, and then converts to the community, usually um, white converts who had a different different interests in Buddhism. Um, and he suggested that it seemed as though these two um, congregations within one community were sort of somewhat mutually isolated or we're, we're pursuing different um, different activities. Um, you know, the, the Asian Americans doing more, um, uh, I think, what he would call cultural practices, and the um, white converts doing more meditation. Um, I think some other folks have tried to look at this parallelism on a larger scale, and and um, I think we can see some of that in American Zen, where there are definitely communities of Zen in America that are predominantly um, uh, populated by converts and their descendants, and then communities that are populated by Japanese Americans and their descendants and they're um, parallel. They're not necessarily intersecting. Um, but at the same time, um, over the last 10, 15 years, my my sense has been that there's been um, 
more interaction between these communities and, and uh, more points of contact. And other scholars have, have wondered whether or not that parallelism um, is uh, something that will last into the future or if it was um, you know, merely a, uh, a factor of what was happening at a particular moment in time. Um, that's, that's one of the fun and challenging things about this area of study is that things, that things change very rapidly when you're talking about um, current events. And um, some of the early scholarship on Buddhism in America, um, I think, needs to be revisited and sort of looked at again and, and, and question whether or not it, again, is reflecting a particular moment in time or if things on the ground are actually beginning to change or, or if, if they're not. <laughs> Great. So I, I want to I, I want to turn to the second section of the book, and in this section you provide a fascinating history of Buddhism in the U.S., devoting a chapter each to Theravada traditions, to Mahayana, largely East Asian traditions, and then to Tantric or Esoteric Buddhist traditions, which in this case refers to Tibetan Buddhism as practiced not only in the Himalayas, but also in parts of Russia and in Mongolia, as well as to Japanese Esoteric Buddhism. Now, I want to skip over much of the specific information you present here, since there's simply too much to mention, and listeners will have to go read it for themselves. But I do want to touch on the final chapter in this section, in which you discuss some of the trends that emerge from a situation in which a large number of culturally distinct and sometimes mutually unintelligible Buddhist traditions exist within the same country and have to make sense of one another. And one trend that you explore is that of non-sectarian or pan-sectarian Buddhism. So what does this look like? And could you give us an example? Sure. Uh, so here I was interested in, um, you know, I, you know, sort of arbitrarily followed the, the, the um, categorization scheme of Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, which is not, um, you know, any categorization scheme is imperfect. But um, one of the the challenges, as you note, in, in the United States is that there's just this this wealth of different Buddhist traditions that invariably um, commingle, so to speak, and um, have to figure out what to do with each other. And sometimes that response might be to um, sort of dig your heels in and become more solidly sectarian. But in other cases, what happens is we see um, different traditions sort of merging together. Um, so one example of that is the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, um, which... Um, you know, it was started by Robert Aiken and some other folks um, in Hawaii. And when I say some other folks, you know, Aiken is coming from a Japanese Zen tradition and um, the people that he's working with are coming from uh, Pure Land tradition, from Theravada traditions, from different Zen lineages. Um, so it's this this mixture of different Buddhist approaches um, in pursuit of um, a particular approach to Buddhism that's um, socially and environmentally engaged. Um, and so here we see a shift away from a, a Buddhist practice or a Buddhist identity that's grounded in what might be considered um, a sort of uh, typical or, or traditional lineage and instead is focused on um, arguably a non-Buddhist cause, you know, environmental engagement, for example. Um, and the practices that are being brought into this tradition or the perspectives or the doctrines or whatnot are coming from different um, different different Buddhist lineages. And so from, from that point of view, it's it's sort of a, a pan-Buddhist organization because it's not uh, limited to one lineage, or you might say it's non-sectarian because they're not claiming a sectarian identity in the way that um, a Zen Buddhist might, right? <clears throat> um, and so another, another example might be the um, East Bay Meditation Center, which similarly um, was founded 
um, by Buddhists from multiple um, traditions. And um, again, they're, they're bringing to the table various perspectives and practices um, from uh, the Zen lineage as well as um, sort of the insight meditation uh, lineage and um, in some Tibetan practices as well. And so I, I'm not, you know, the point of this chapter was to sort of play with what, again, might be um, future trajectories, um, or they might just be, you know, a particular moment in time. Um, but some of these, some of these issues, I think, have some legs and will we'll carry on into um, the development of, of possibly new, uh, wholly new traditions um, in, the, in the years to come. Great. And another trend that you mentioned here is that of secular Buddhism with mindfulness-based groups being, in some cases, a typical example. How has secular Buddhism fared in the U.S., and do you see it as a um, as a sort of significant aspect of American Buddhism currently? Uh, yeah, I think it's a very significant aspect. Um um, you know, I think that secular Buddhism can be looked at from a couple different perspectives. There's um, there's an actual organization called the Secular Buddhist Association, which um, uh, sort of points toward the possibility of a, um, of a community of like-minded Buddhists who are approaching the tradition from a particular way. But um, there's also the sort of larger discursive or rhetorical um, aspect of secular Buddhism, which is... Um, to, to grossly oversimplify things, a critique of a sort of modern and or pre-modern perspectives on Buddhism, largely around issues of um, soteriology or um, faith or mythology, right? So there's this um, uh, rejection of a sort of traditional understanding of Buddhist cosmology, um, a rejection of things like um, rebirth or um, um, karma being related necessarily to your reincarnation and being more... Um, uh, the universal law of cause and effect. Um, oftentimes that gets sort of coupled with the idea that um, Buddhism is compatible with science. And so here we see a sort of hallmark of a modern Buddhist discourse that um, situates Buddhism as being um, consonant with uh, principles of modern science. Um, and on that level, I think that the this sort of approach to Buddhism as being um, uh, of, of sort of pushing Buddhism to be more secular, I think, has had an influence not only on individual Buddhists or organizations, but on what we might consider more traditional Buddhist groups as well, that have to um, negotiate that that new space and have to uh, sort of make a claim or um, an argument about who they are as Buddhists um, in response to those concerns. Um, and in terms of the mindfulness movement, this plays out in a, in a related way, um, but it's somewhat somewhat different um, in, to the extent that, the, that, that mindfulness, meditation, and other practices are being sort of deployed in secular spaces. So this is the other the other sense of the word secular um, as um, secular institutions such as uh, public schools or um, hospitals or, or that kind of thing where um, folks are, are looking at the, the, the benefits of mindfulness meditation or other, um, med- uh, other Buddhist practices um, from a therapeutic point of view. Um, th- this issue has um, been... Uh, the source of some consternation among different Buddhist groups uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some folks who feel that um, you know you, you can't take these practices out of their Buddhist context and divorce them of ethical ish, uh, of concerns or soteriological goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then there are others who say, well, you know, 
there's a sort of proven track record where these practices have helped people who are dealing with chronic pain or depression or, or other issues. Um, and then the rejoinder is usually, well, those scientific studies are actually um, not that consistent. <laughs> we need to do a meta-analysis of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a sort of large ongoing debate about um, about what all that ha- what, about what all of this means, and um, you know, different folks have sort of taken it in different in different directions. And um, you know, Jeff Wilson has a sort of um, uh, uh, has has written a book called Mindful America on this topic, and, and he argues in part that. This in in the abstract, this is one of those ways that Buddhism has tried to um, uh, to adapt itself to a new cultural context. Um, and there's some there's some validity that um, again, it's a moving target, and um, uh, I think that different people have um, you know different people have different stakes in the game um, as far as what they think um, the outcome should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That topic in particular, I imagine, is quite difficult to research because it's sort of constantly changing and so current you sort of yeah i don't know quite how you'd pin uh, yeah the, 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 the parts where i mentioned mindfulness in the book i, I rewrote up until the last minute <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> to try to yeah. make sure that i was getting the most uh sort of current right um and you know as i said before you know this is a constantly changing thing and i imagine that but my book will feel dated in some ways within a few years because of well, of these kinds of developments yeah well, so moving on to the third and final section of the book, um, you turn your attention to a number of what you call frames, and these are themes or issues common to most forms of American Buddhism, or alternatively, they are areas of focus that we can use to better understand the nature of American Buddhism and how it's changing. You begin this section with a chapter on the mediation of Buddhism, uh, mediation through visual representations, literary expression, and so forth. And you note that it is in this area that Buddhism most clearly interacts with and sometimes blends into explicitly non-Buddhist areas of society. Uh, for example, you, you mentioned that among the writings of the Beat authors, there were works that could be regarded as explicitly Buddhist, but then there are many works that are inspired by Buddhism, but probably wouldn't necessarily be located squarely within a Buddhist tradition or, or recognizable Buddhist culture. So how does examining such works help us understand Buddhism in the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, to kind of go back to the um, the the things I was saying about Thomas Tweed's work and the way in which culture sort of flows in together and flows out together, Tweed is also known for coming up with this phrase, uh, Buddhist sympathizers or nightstand Buddhists, and he noted back in the 90s that there was this um, this trend of of folks who are um, sort of tangentially interested in Buddhism um, but for whatever reason don't self-identify as such um, and I think what he's really pointing at is the way in which um, you know Buddhism or Buddhist these are bounded categories if I claim that I'm a Buddhist I'm uh, also making the claim that I'm not something else right um, but as we know, culture doesn't always uh, pay attention to our to our rules, right? So um, culture has this way of of um, going beyond whatever sort of categories we put on it. And I think this is particularly true when we're talking about um, creative arts, um, literature, arts, um, film, those kinds of things. Um, you know, we like to say that there are genres, for example, of of fiction or, or film or of music, but oftentimes um, artists. Um, intentionally play with those genre boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that I think creates a cultural space where Buddhism can enter into a new cultural context in a way that's not as um, uh, deliberate or explicit as you know creating a new meditation center or a new temple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I go in and make a new temple, I'm making I'm literally making a claim on the ground. Right, <laughs> this right. is where Buddhism is. Um, but if Buddhism shows up in pop culture, then you can also look at the way in which um, Buddhism is having an effect on our culture <clears throat> in a, a more subtle and indirect way. Um, it's not always unproblematic, to be sure. And um, I think one of the, the fertile areas of research here is to look at the um, the way in which this happens. And um, you know, there's all kinds of questions about um, the the authenticity of it or um, whether or not we want to make the claim that, that this piece of, of art is Buddhist and this one isn't and, and all those kinds of things are, are certainly worth exploring. Um, but the, the, the underlying issue here for me has always been to, um, to explore the way in which um, uh, Buddhism pops up in, in different aspects of culture um, as a reflection not only of um, Buddhism, but as a reflection of, of how we think of ourselves as a people, as Americans, right? How do we sort of understand our place in the world um, how do we envision ourselves? Um, what stories do we tell about ourselves? And how does Buddhism get sort of implicated in all of that? Which is, um, you know, that's a much bigger, <laughs> that's that's a book in and of itself. No right. Doubt. <clears throat> so, and in this chapter, you also explored the use of Buddhist imagery and ideas for more explicitly commercial ends. And you, you give the one example you give is the smoothie company Jamba Juice's um, production of a line of drinks called Enlightening Smoothies beginning in 2003, uh, the bottles of which featured an image based on the Tibetan Tonka paintings. So how does, um, I mean, how does the commercialization of Buddhist imagery work in the U.S.? And what have been some, to what extent has this been controversial, controversial among Buddhist groups? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hugely controversial. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I think the 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 concern. There's a couple different concerns. One um, has to do with just the use of images. Um, you know, Buddhist images have very specific meanings and functions and purposes in um, in in Buddhist history. Um, you know, there's specific ways that that icons or statues have to be um, situated or represented or presented, right? Um, great care must be taken with these images. So, um, so one line of critique has to do with, well, if you take this image of the Buddha and slap it on a on bumper sticker, are you somehow disrespecting that image and then by extension the religion or a person's practicing it? Um, and those, those arguments, I think, are, um, are valid and, and, and oftentimes have to sort of be looked at on a case-by-case basis. I think I also mentioned um, in the book the case of a... Um, uh, toilet brush holder that mm-hmm. um, was being sold with images of the Buddha on it, and right. there was a clear example where there's um, a, a, a taboo against having an image on the floor, let alone anywhere near a toilet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that's an example of like, well, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on the other hand, um, the sort of larger um, theoretical um, or methodological question that I'm that I'm pointing at here has to do with postcolonial studies and Orientalism. Um, and the way in which, um, for for a, a pretty long period of time, uh, Western cultures have kind of mined Asian cultures for um, for a, for works of art or for ideas or for practices, largely to benefit themselves. 
Um, and this has to do with the, the, the idea of cultural appropriation. And, and this is not unrelated to the concerns raised by some about mindfulness of, of the way in which we're um, sort of appropriating these practices into non-religious spaces or commercial spaces and therefore benefiting by them in um, sometimes very lucrative way. What, um, does that action, is that action moral or ethical, or does it do some damage or harm to um, the Buddhist tradition, I think is the, is the fundamental question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from the point of view of, of, of Buddhist communities of practice, I think that's an, a, a very important question, and um, different communities have different ways of um, addressing that issue. From the point of view of, of the chapter that I wrote in my own perspective as a scholar, um, you know, one of the things about the Jamba Juice thing that I found interesting was that the artist in question was um, themselves a, a self-described practicing Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And so one of the issues there is to sort of explore that relationship of rather than creating a, a dichotomy of, you know, bad capitalists and commodifiers versus um, good Buddhists is to sort of, again, see that relationship between um, these these cultural discourses and how do we how do we understand that if um, you know if everybody's sort of implicated in this um, what then you know what is it is it no longer authentic is it now authentic I mean these are the these are the questions as a teacher that I love to um, challenge my students with and so yeah um, it was good to sort of throw that in the book as well yes yes yeah going back to the toilet brush example I seem to remember some example of a bikini produced uh, being sold in the UK that had a picture of the Buddha, you know, on the, on it or something. I remember that was controversial. I'm sure okay. long ago, but, um, so in this third section of the book, you also address the issue of Buddhist identity within the United States. Um, and so I wanted to ask how the, the issues of, um, how discussions around racial identity, ethnic and or cultural identity have um, how those discussions have appeared within American Buddhism and or affected it. Um, I think, you know, that question can be answered in a lot of different ways. And I'll just start by saying that um, it, the, the racial politics and discourses around race are um, obviously a huge important issue within American culture generally. Um, so it should come as no surprise that um, issues of race come up in American Buddhism. Um, Americans, I believe, have a pretty um, uh, difficult time talking about race, and so it's not surprising to me that, um, that American Buddhists also have a difficult time talking about it. Um, I think how issues of race and other markers of identity have affected American Buddhism depends a lot on, on where and when you're looking. Um, it's hard not to see how um, immigration policies in the late 1800s, early 19th, uh, early 20th century, had an effect on the development of of American Buddhism, as we we're talking about before with Chinese and Japanese immigrants. And those pos- those policies were clearly racially motivated. You know, they were they were immigration policies that were um, explicitly designed to um, keep certain ethnicities out of this country. Mm-hmm. And then once immigrants um, did come to this country. Um, as I said before, um, Asians were subject to Jim Crow laws, and um, that had an effect on their ability to become citizens. Generally, they couldn't become citizens. They um, couldn't own land, um, you know, all that kind of thing. That also has an effect on how Buddhism is being practiced in the early 20th century. Um, and then, of course, the big, um, the big issue, particularly for Japanese-American Buddhists, is the um, internment during World War II. 
um, you know, this this uh, the imprisonment of Japanese American Buddhists during that time period um, reinforced this idea of racial difference and reinforced the the the, the desire on the part of this community to um, to really defend itself as authentically American, as legitimately American, um, and then do what it could to um, to to play the part, so to speak, to 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 um, to look as American as possible, basically. Um, and this has an effect on the way in which um, Jodo Shinshu temples, for example, um, literally do practice, right? They have a, a practice schedule that has a Sunday morning worship service, right? And that you can see clear parallels there with um, sort of dominant American Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but I think also on some level, the, <clears throat> the internment also pardon me, creates a situation where the community um, goes into sort of a self-preservation or self-defense kind of mode um, and is less um, receptive to uh, outside influences and um, is more concerned about preserving its own um, sort of niche than it is with um, propagation or or outreach, right? So one of the the interesting and, and, and somewhat tragic stories of the beat generation is how there's this, this moment in time where, um, you know, young, uh, curious white kids are coming into the community and trying to learn more about Buddhism. Um, but they're coming in at a, at a moment in time when, you know, at the beats are, are challenging dominant normative, um, American culture of the 1950s and mm-hmm. the Japanese Americans really don't want to, to challenge that mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. even understand why, you know, I mean, they were literally imprisoned. So, um, you know, don't rock the boat kind of thing. Right. So you have that, that moment in history where you have the potential for, um, for something really amazing to happen. But because of these larger racial discourses that are going on, um, that just becomes um, uh, challenging to say the least, if not impossible. And so this is one of those areas where I say that we see a sort of divergence where um, particularly after um, folks like uh, Shinru Suzuki come to San Francisco, um, a new sort of strain of Zen Buddhism branches off that um, sort of diverges from a pre-existing Japanese-American Zen community, um, largely along racial lines. Um, as the, the field of American Buddhist studies begins to develop, um, then we see um, scholarly and popular approaches to the study of American Buddhism that tended to reinforce this by um, by making the claim that there are basically two or three Buddhisms in the United States. and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of matching the communities to these sort of racial categories. Um, you know, I think that the the scholarship on that has um, has, has really developed and have become quite sophisticated and um, quite nuanced. Um, on the ground, I still see a lot of tension um, in particular communities, um, and oftentimes this, this tension is the result of change over time, right? Um, demographics are just shifting across the board in American Buddhist communities, and different communities have to deal mm-hmm. with that in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases are making a new community like the East Bay Meditation Center. Um, those folks were frustrated by the, 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 the traditions they came from and said, well, let's just make our own community <laughs> yeah. where we'll be as inclusive as possible. Um, and so there's, uh, and, and more recently, if you look at the um, publications like Shamb- uh, what well, used to be Shambhala Sun, now it's Lion's Roar, um, they've been doing more um, publishing on, on questions of race and identity and and what that means as American Buddhists sort of struggle with uh, with these issues, because um, you know, I mean, again, um, America has uh, has had difficulty around the issue yeah. of race, and um, I don't see that going away in the general public. And so, um, uh, Buddhists are dealing with it in their own in their own specific way. 
um, and and not just around the, the dichotomy between um, Asians and, and whites, but also um, the way in which that discourse tends to um, sideline the experience of African American Buddhists, which is mm-hmm. another area of research that um, um, is very understudied. That um, that you know, again, there's there's so much uh, there's so much more out there that we can uh, be doing fruitful research on that um, I hope that if nothing else, this book sort of just points people in different directions. Sure. I mean, related, <clears throat> excuse me, related to this, you note this idea of sort of two Buddhisms in the United States, um, a sort of discussion that was uh, not started by, but sort of pushed into the foreground by um, a tricycle article from 1991 by Helen uh, Torkoff, if that's how I pronounce her name. Um, and, and so what is this idea of two, uh, two Buddhisms um, and how, how is it problematic and or useful for understanding American Buddhism? Um, well, the way in which she, the way in which Helen Zwarkov wrote that is problematic because she made the claim that um, Asian immigrants hadn't uh, participated in creating something called American Buddhism, which um, is just historically not true. Um, be, and the reason that's problematic is because it implies that um, legitimate American Buddhism is necessarily not Asian, um, which reinforces the idea that Asian Americans aren't American. Um, so that's just a problematic claim. Um, in scholarly literature, this manifests as a, a sort of categorization scheme, um, whereby scholars would make the claim that there are essentially, you know, Buddhisms that are composed primarily of white converts on the one hand, and Asian and Asian uh, Americans on the other. Um, as as a methodology or as a typology or or, or what have you, um, my feeling is is that uh, all typologies are flawed, mm-hmm. <laughs> are imperfect, and methodologies um, uh, sometimes work, and oftentimes methodologies also have blind spots. And so the question is just to sort of to to look at that methodology um, or those typologies and and ask the critical questions of what. What does this miss? Um, is it useful, or does it sort of get in the way of other kind of scholarship? Um, so one one question to go back to the, the idea of um, African American Buddhists. One of the issues here is that basically what we've done is we've said there are white convert communities and there are Asian communities. Um, and so if you say if you make that dichotomy and then you come across um, an individual or a Buddhist or a community of black American Buddhists, then where do they fit in that typology? Mm-hmm. And so then the question just becomes, well, is is that typology then useful <laughs> right. if, um, it, if it misses something, so to speak? Um, and so that's sort of, the, um, I think, the pertinent question. And then, um, then there are um, other um, subtle or overt issues of uh, privilege or racism within the typology. And Shannon uh, Wakohiki, her article, I think, is... Um, uh, sort of the defining uh, uh, piece on that issue where she points out that um, one of the, the problems of this typology is that it, it creates um, uh, this idea that white convert communities are uh, not defined by their ethnicity or their culture and Asian groups are. Um, and her argument there, of course, is that you know white people have culture and um, our cultural biases affect the way that our um, affect the way that we practice Buddhism or develop Buddhist uh, traditions or whatnot and that should be a subject of critique or investigation or scholarly study um, as any other culture is 
Um, so this is coming out of critical race theory, which, um, again, I think um, Hickey's article is um, sort of the definitive word on the subject. Um, I, you know, I, I feel that I didn't really add anything new <laughs> to this discussion in my book, in part because other scholars have done um, uh, a really fun, a really fantastic job sort of uh, parsing out those those complexities. Um, and, um, you know, fortunately, a lot of that scholarship is also um, freely available, and I often encourage my students to share it, you know, um, to get to have these conversations on, on the ground as well as um, in the academy so that, um, you know, people can start having more nuanced conversations. Great. Thanks for that. I was actually wondering if you could, would care to mention something about the Institute of Buddhist Studies where you yourself teach, because that institution is itself very much a part of the story of American Buddhism. Sure. Uh, so the, uh, the Institute of Buddhist Studies was, um, uh, we sort of trace our history back to 1949 um, as a, a sort of study group was established at the Berkeley Buddhist Temple. The, the Berkeley Buddhist Temple is a, um, a Jodo Shinshu temple was established um, a, here in Berkeley, I want to say, in uh, 1911, perhaps, um, early part of the, um, the 20th century. Um, and uh, after World War II, um, one of the things that happened with Jodo Shinshu Buddhism in America was um, by World War II, um, the the first native-born generation of Japanese Americans, um, usually called Nisei, had come of age and had started taking on leadership roles within the community. Um, and there was uh, a minister at the Berkeley Temple who um, had some uh, loose connection to UC Berkeley and was very interested in um, education and um uh, for a lot of different reasons, you know, in, in part, the, the Berkeley Temple had a dormitory, for example, and Japanese-American students studying at the university um, lived there for a while. And um, in the late 1940s and into the 1950s, there was a lot of sort of um, interest in learning more about Buddhism and um, uh, both in the general public, but also within the community itself, um, you know. Uh, and w one of the issues that came to the fore was the idea of training priests or, or ministers here in the United States. And, and the reason that this was an issue was because prior to World War II, all of the, the priests serving in the United States had come from Japan. Um, but now we were living in a new time when there were um, second and then third generation Japanese Americans who um, were interested in becoming priests themselves. Um, and and or the, the community itself wanted people who were like them, who were American and not from Japan, right? So that study center in the 1950s um, developed in time into a, a formal sort of uh, ministerial educational program. Um, and then in the 1960s, um, it formally incorporated with the state of California as a graduate school and became the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Um, and because of that, I think it's fair to say that the IBS is um, probably um, the first um, organized uh, institution of Buddhist higher education in the United States. Um, it wasn't that long afterwards that uh, places like Naropa University were established out in Boulder, Colorado, and then mm -hmm. um, probably in the 80s or 90s is when um, the Shilai organization in Los Angeles established University of the West. Um, and there are a couple of other um, sort of Buddhist universities that are, are developing right now in the United States. And so this is actually something I didn't talk about at all in the book, but I think it's worth, uh, again, um, sort of more more studies. Um, right now we're seeing the development of a half dozen different um, Buddhist schools of higher education that um, are, are creating curricula that are um, 
inspired by Buddhism or explicitly in, in line with Buddhist studies as an academic discipline um, or are, are doing things that are like, you know, business schools and whatnot <laughs> um, that um, don't really have anything to do with Buddhism but um, are, are funded by Buddhist organizations or, or established by a Buddhist tradition, um, which is, uh, I think, a... Um, uh, an interesting development in the history of, of American higher education and, and what that might mean uh, for the future. And so um, I feel quite fortunate to be able to, to teach in a, in a place like the Institute for Studies where we have this sort of long history um, and this, uh, this commitment to um, Buddhist studies as an academic discipline. And, um, you know, you asked earlier about pan-Buddhist organizations, you know, IBS, came out of a Jodo Shinshu context, but now we have programs in, you know, Soto Zen studies and Theravada studies and, um, you know, Buddhist chaplaincy and whatever else. And so, um, you know, we're, we're sort of becoming pan, pan Buddhist ourselves in a, in a uh, hmm. interesting way. So, um, uh, interesting times, I think. Yeah. Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, we're going to have to sort of begin wrapping it up, but I should mention for listeners that there's a whole lot we didn't cover. We didn't even touch on the last two chapters in the book. I should also mention that the book contains useful chapter summaries at the beginning of each chapter and discussion questions and suggestions for further reading at the end of each chapter, which makes it particularly useful for use in the classroom. Um, this would be an excellent book to use as the main text for a a class on Buddhism in America. Um, now, having said that, filled with information and thorough re research as it is, the book has much to offer any scholar interested in understanding the history and current state of Buddhism in the U.S. I certainly learned a great deal. Um, also, because it's written in, it uh, reads very well, it's accessible you know, to anyone who, to people who don't know anything about Buddhism, so it's very approachable. As a last question, Scott, I wanted to um, ask if there's anything that you're working on now, um, now that this project is out of the way. Uh, yeah, well, I, I sort of uh, committed to write a couple of uh, short um, encyclopedia articles for um, a couple different Oxford handbooks that are coming out um, in the next couple of years. Um, but I hope to return my attention to um, my, my graduate work was mostly on, on ritual, actually, on the way in which Buddhism is actually practiced. Hmm. Um, and I've done some research on um, Buddhist music and um, other sorts of uh, uh, practices like that. Um, and I hope to be able to turn my attention back to that in the, in the coming year. Yeah. And you do actually mention at a few places in the uh, book the way in which the Jodo Shinshu, the Japanese Pure Land School in the United States, did actually incorporate um, music into its services in a rather innovative way. But we'll leave that for discussion of your next uh, research project. So yeah, great. I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. And that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time.